David Zock, the man in front at Remedy Drive, has come for a talk with The Antidote. David, so good to have you here. Yeah, it's going to be on the program. I first heard Remedy Drive in 08 with the song Daylight is Coming, but the band was around long before that. Yeah, we had started when I was in high school, uh, went under different names, Aslan Band, uh, Remedy, and it was in 08 that we um, put out our first major record label release. It was a family band in those days. Your brothers were in the band. Yeah, we started different trios of brothers between the four of us, then we spent a lot of time on the road as the four of us brothers, and that ended in 2010. Four brothers. Did that make your household life just chaotic? Yeah. I mean, we were all uh, getting married and having kids, and the kids were growing up in the bus with their uncles and aunts, and it was a real special time in our lives um, and a difficult time. We were playing like 200 concerts a year just to make the ends meet, and I, I have a lot of fond memories of that time. When your brothers left the band, did it make a change to Remedy Drive? Yeah, because, you know, for a long time, you know, it was it was a, a team effort. And while I wrote most of the songs, uh, or all the songs, for most of those years, we didn't really have a way of deciding things. And then suddenly I've inherited this, uh, the full responsibility of moving forward with the blessing of my brothers and having to figure all that out was, it was precarious for me, yeah. Well, that brings up something, because I've heard a number of times that David Zock is Remedy Drive, meaning the band isn't a collaborative effort. Well, there's probably a time in my past where I would have been proud of that idea. <laughs> uh, it caused a lot of strain between the brothers. Like, you know, is this David's songs and we're just playing? Or And um, me and my brother Phil especially did not get along Uh because there's a lot of competition. We're a year and a half apart. And the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me in my life is after those years, in 2010, my brother, uh, Phil, produced his own solo project called Arrows and Sound. And my son, Jack, was like, hey, Dak, we listen to Uncle Phil's music. And something in my heart changed in those two years after the brother stopped touring with me. And since then, my brother, Phillips produced all our records. Um, I didn't notice as much when we were on the road together in the thick of it. But his contribution and our ability to create together has always been at the center of what, what we've been doing. All the way going back into high school and those years in college where we lived in a house together, Philip and I have collaborated in different ways. And what are the other brothers up to now? Um, Paul leads worship at a church in Charlottesville. He's adopted three kids. And my brother Dan uh, sells cars in Lincoln, Nebraska. Over the years, Remedy Drive has been signed to a couple of labels, Centricity and Word. Does now being an independent band open things up for you artistically that you weren't able to do on a label? You can't overstate that enough. The um, compression and the sanitizing and the shrink wrapping of my creative soul is something that I'm still recovering from. Uh, there's just such a narrow amount of bandwidth and you can't go outside the lines at those companies. I guess it's not everybody at every company like that, but it's just a, such a narrow view of the world and a narrow view of what art should be. And uh, honestly, I had a guy tell me, hey, it's not so much about making art. You just have to figure out the craft of making something that's going to work. And I just couldn't live that way. I'm an artist. I didn't set out to make jingles to sell a worldview. Um, 
not to say that they're not successful in doing that, and they are successful in doing that, but the A&R had a marketing director say to me, he said, listen, I'm a whore. I just need something I can sell, and I just don't buy into that worldview. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> I cannot be a commodity, and I will not be shrink-wrapped. I will not have the intimate depths of my heart shrink-wrapped and, and reduced to the lowest common denominator. So what you said times a million. <laughs> well, I think then you're going to relate to what I'm about to bring up because I'm a really critical guy. And the music that came from Remedy Drive prior to Commodity was very commercial. And that's the kind of music that doesn't keep my attention. I've brought yeah. up the same point with other artists. Should the music created by Christians be safe or should it be challenging? Well, it should be the most challenging. Um, and this idea of safe for the whole family, um, concentrating only on what is positive, concentrating only on what is encouraging, and then taking things. And if there is an element of darkness and brokenness in the verse, just painting it with this overwhelmingly um, lopsided, optimistic, bright, glossing over. Um, yes, we who claim to have tapped into the most creative source in the universe, creativity itself, the creator, we should, of all people, be the most creative and the most artistic. And what we have to say should be challenging in the way that the words of Jesus Christ were challenging and the prophets were challenging. And that kind of stuff is, is not allowed in the positive, encouraging, safe for the whole family realm. But there's certainly a large number of people that want that sanitized world. That's, that's a great question. Do they want it or are they being force-fed it? Good point. I, I would be in conversations in A&R meetings and they have commoditized their target market. They call her Becky. And on a regular basis, they're talking about Becky and, you know, she's driving in a minivan in Michigan and she has two kids and she has a minute or three minutes where she's dropping them off at school and she just needs, she just needs to be encouraged. She just needs to be told everything's going to be okay. And I, I think they've commoditized me, but they also commoditize her and they, they reduce her and they, they don't give her the credit that she deserves because I, I meet people in that same demographic all over the country and all over the world and they want to be challenged. They want someone to lead them towards dangerous unselfishness. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., they're, they're looking for that. And they're, if they don't find it on those Christian airwaves, they're going to find it somewhere. Well, I don't think the music industry's Becky is going to be listening to The Antidote, so we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to the album Commodity. The title track is superb. It has the line, Don't let them use me. Put a pen in my hands and not an Uzi. I'm dreaming of the sweet sound of liberty, a railroad underground to deliver me. Is freedom different here in North America? compared to other countries you've traveled to? I, I think about it a lot because, you know, here in America, for some reason, people always have to talk about their countries being the best in the world. And I've been to Norway, I've been to Amsterdam, the Netherlands, I've been to Finland and Germany. I spent a lot of time in Germany. And then I go overseas uh, with the Exodus Road, so I spent, spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and Latin America. And there's different... Uh, strengths that different cultures have and there's something really beautiful about a lot of those countries um that i'm like oh i wish that was i wish we had something like that here in, in america uh the lyric you referenced is coming specifically from uganda and some of the work that i was really excited about people that have been 
using art and art therapy to help boys that were kidnapped and forced to be boy soldiers. But I mean, that, that line that you mentioned is so layered. I am dreaming of the sweet sound of Liberty railroad underground, both metaphorically from my own heart, my own bondage, my own self, um, my own issues that I'm enslaved to, uh, but also for boy soldiers and sex trafficking. And then also in general, we are held under these spells that I wish we could break out of. You've obviously taking on the role as an activist, and that certainly comes through in the music of Remedy Drive. But I've also seen many Christians uncomfortable with the concept of Christians actually taking on that activist role. Yeah, they're uncomfortable with it. They're uncomfortable with it because it's been so downplayed. And I'm not sure why, specifically with evangelicals, there's a backlash against, um, you know, high church, Anglican and Catholic, and the, the emphasis on good works and the importance of being on the front lines of social causes and social movements. From my perspective, there's a lot of people sitting back and throwing stones and criticizing Hollywood for the way Hollywood handled the Me Too movement, criticizing people in the way they get involved uh, with using their political capital, their moral capital. But from my perspective, once again, the same way I mentioned that with art, we of all people should be on the front lines of the modern day abolition on the front lines of those that are digging wells and fighting against inequality and racial inequality, on the front lines of helping uh, with the AIDS crisis and other emergencies like that, and on the front lines of figuring out real solutions for refugees, both here in our countries and and in the countries where they're coming from. And I don't know why there's a backlash against that. Um, It's something that I'm frustrated by, and the best way I can fight it is through my melodies. Do you think it could ever be that simply people are wanting to do that separation of church and state, and they think that activism is too politicized? There's that. Um, But if you really talk to those people, they're willing to put that aside for a couple pet issues. (laughs) Almost 100% of the time. Uh, they're willing to join in those arenas if it's something that they think is most important. And generally, in evangelical circles, that has to do with marriage quality and um, abortion. So I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is these things, people want to say, specifically with slavery, people will respond and say, well, when Jesus came and said, and here's his words, quoting an ancient prophet named Isaiah, he said, the spirit of the Almighty is upon me. And I have good news for poor people to proclaim freedom to the captives, liberty to the prisoners, and a restoration of dignity to the oppressed and the downtrodden. So when he said that, I hear promise of an abolition movement from the king of the universe, because he knew that followers would hear those words that he said and know that it was important to him. Uh, Because he referenced these concepts, social justice, social causes, taking the cause of the oppressed and the poor and the fatherless and the stranger and the exiled, these things are mentioned 2,100 times in our scripture. So I think it is not like this passive um, kind of missing the point. I think there's a real deep issue with the leadership of the evangelical movement in the way they interface scripture with social causes. It's, a, it's not just a passive missing the ball it's almost cutting these scriptures out, these 2,100 references out and reducing them to a 
suggestion or a metaphor. And that's frustrating. This sort of brings to mind for me some of the negative comments that Bono has taken over the years. He and the <laughs> music of U2 have obviously have put people on edge. Yeah. Have you found the same thing happening with Remedy Drive? Yeah, and I get, I, I mean, even their one of the most cool things he's done is when he put his hand up and held a, a symbolic torch, and behind him is, uh, you know, the Statue of Liberty, and she's holding that torch. <laughs> Did you see that, that award show recently when they're yeah. out on the, and then just the, the hatred they get for it. Um, and I don't know why. I knew what we were doing. It's not like I didn't know that this is going to bum people out. Um, and I, I'm another artist I really look up to is John Foreman from Switchfoot. And he's also been really vocal about important things. And he's done some panels on racial inequality in our country. And even having um, the rapper propaganda on our album, I knew it would put a target on us because of uh, how outspoken he is about different things. But I'm, I'm not in this to be popular. I, I have to be honest. And I know that when you, when you mess with somebody's idol, it's going to bum them out. And I think, unfortunately that an idol for a lot of people in this part of the world is uh, evangelical religious nationalism. And I, I'm pointing that out. And that's not a popular thing to point out. That's so true. I want to go on to the commodity album that you designed as a concept to look at human trafficking. And this wasn't some abstract idea. You're involved personally with the anti-human trafficking group, The Exodus Road. Can you tell us about that? Well, I started writing Commodity. The lyric you said earlier was written specifically about boy soldiers in Uganda. I have a close friend, Jeremy Cowart. He's a celebrity photographer. And seeing the way he used his camera really inspired me five, six years ago. And it was around that time that I left the Christian music industry. Um, I was in it believing that, that I could make changes and say things that weren't being said. And I found out that I couldn't in that context because of what we just talked about. So that was a weird time for me. I'm writing these songs that I know I need to write, and it's commodity. The song, it's under the starlight. I'm singing about slavery. I'm, I, I'm researching Harriet Tubman and uh, Frederick Douglass. Their correspondence is just brilliant. If you've never read their letters back and forth. Um, I'm coming across quotes from a guy like Frederick Douglass. He says, the soul that is within me, no man can degrade. And William Wilberforce's quote, an abolitionist from that time period, he says, you can never again say that, that you don't know about this. And the way that moved me, this idea that we can look away, we have that option, but we can never again say we didn't see this, we didn't know what's going on. I'm writing these songs, and in this amazing moment of convergence i meet matt parker from the exodus road he reaches out to us he heard one of our more commercial songs as you said on the radio in colorado springs and he's just hoping that there would be bands in nashville that would uh, tell his story tell about the exodus road and four of the managers and the bands that he uh had set up appointments with canceled on that day so here it is like 8 p.m i'm the only artist that came through and met with him and I could not believe what he was saying and his stories. He's talking about the raids that they do, the investigations. He has three kids, just about the same age as my kids. And something moved in me. I said, Matt, I don't want to just talk about 
what you're doing. I want to join you. Nobody's going to listen to me if I'm just another artist talking about things. Mm-hmm. I, I have to have some skin in the game. And that was where it all started for us. And you've gone overseas and you've been directly involved with this. I wonder what it's like when you're meeting with the victims of human trafficking. Has it ever made you doubt God's will? Well, when I'm sitting in a brothel or a dance club with a child that's for sale for sex, it doesn't seem real. It seems like a movie, even though I've researched all this. I know it exists. I know there's 40 million people enslaved today. But then when I walk out of that brothel and I look and there's tons of dance clubs and brothels like that on that street and in that region and and that number hits me, 40 million, it's hard to get your mind around that number. But when you see the impact it has on one child or one girl from Uganda that's being sold in the streets of Southeast Asia by a drug dealer, separated from her family, and you get in a conversation with a sweet girl from Asia and, and she's part of a mass migration of the country's daughters from the hillside, from the farmland down into the major cities. And she's wore out. She's tired. She has to dance with men that are three times her age and three times her weight. Like when all that starts to hit you and sink in, then I don't have any response other than the response my daughter had when I watched that video on Joseph Coney, the warlord that was kidnapping eight-year-old boys and forcing them to fight. Right. I remember that. And my daughter's response when she's watching that with me was, Dad, why doesn't God protect those boys? And I, I have that similar feeling because the sheer scale of this operation, these mafias, these crimes and the kids, it's, it's overwhelming to see how evil and darkness is prospering. And talk about what your role is in those countries when you're there. So the Exodus Road exists to find and free slaves and the emphasis of the organization is on child sex trafficking so we're going into commercial sex areas there's a market for sex tourism in certain major cities that we have a large presence in we're going into the countryside as well into brothels out in the countryside or dance clubs or karaoke clubs it looks different in different regions but we're going in to use covert surveillance gear to find evidence of sex trafficking. And sex trafficking is defined as when someone sells someone else for sex and there's fraud, force, or coercion involved, or if somebody's a minor. Uh, so we're going to find evidence of that, actual evidence that we then use to partner with local authorities to go back in on sting operations and make raids that uh, lead to the freedom of these girls and also that will lead to the arrests and the dismantling of these crime syndicates that are responsible for making money off the backs of our daughters and our sons. You know, what you're doing in Latin America and Southeast Asia, it's a great thing, but the reality is that it's dangerous. How are you able to do this? Like, David Zock has no fear? No, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And I'm afraid of what it's doing to my soul. I'm afraid of losing hope and losing faith. My hope isn't the same hope that was all shiny on, on the Daylight album in 2008. It's a guarded hope, and I think it's a more informed hope. And I'm also scared of, of mobsters, you know? I, I, don't, uh, I don't like hanging out with these guys. I don't like the way we travel. I don't like the fact that 
facial recognition software exists. But everybody I've looked up to in history, everybody that I have told my kids about has moved forward in the face of fear. And I just want to join that group of people. I want to belong to that group of people that decided to live selflessly when it was costly to them and when it was potentially costly to them. Because this is going to be my life's work and it could cost me my life, but this is my life. This is what I have to offer. These are my songs. This is what I have to offer. I'm going to offer this to this movement of justice. But it must be a huge worry for your family about your involvement with Exodus Road. How does your wife and kids respond? They're proud of me. And I'm really moved by that. I mean, for my wife, when I came home from that meeting with Matt Parker, she knew what I was writing about. And uh, she knew that, you know, I showed her uh, an article that I read about this guy named Aaron Cohen that does similar work. This guy really moved me. And I remember reading that article. I was like, man, in another life, maybe I could do something like this. And my wife and I are laying in bed that night after I met with Matt. And I said, hey, Anna, I think I'm supposed to do this. I think I'm supposed to go do undercover work. No one's going to listen. Um, it has to be costly to us if we're going to be recruiting people into this line of work. And she's like, no way. What are you talking about? And this is the way our marriage works. I was like, well, Matt's coming over for breakfast tomorrow. I invited him. And uh, <laughs> so I, we made some eggs and Matt's sitting there and he's talking about the failed raids. He's talking about the investigations. He's talking about Sudhir in India, just getting stuff done on a regular basis. And Anna just responds like she's crying and she's like, David's going to join you. This will be our legacy. And that confidence and that single-mindedness uh, really defines my wife and it has defined her throughout this because she deals with the baggage that I bring home emotionally from, from being over there. And she's come out with me once, which I think has been really helpful for us because she sees the context. She understands the sorrow. It was my wife that noticed that a lot of these girls' high heels are too big for them. And um, she brought that female uh, observing and that female connection to a lot of the stories of, of the girls I meet that, you know, I don't notice as well being a guy. Your wife had said this was going to be your legacy. Do you think what you're doing there physically hands-on in those countries is going to overshadow what you're doing as a musician? Because it's the same message that you're carrying with that right now. Yeah, I, I can't, um, I don't compartmentalize it. The songs from the North Star, you know, Commodity, we finished Commodity after uh, my first time going overseas, and a lot of the lyric got shifted to concentrate more on that work. Um, but now the lyric from the North Star celebrates the bravery and the work of the abolitionists and other areas of justice and mercy and compassion that I meet, and is inspired by that courage, inspired by conversations I've had with Sudhir our undercover operative from India that leads up the team there with Matt Parker from the Exodus road with a child I met in North Dakota that told me uh, that her family has been inspired to hunt wolves and rescue princesses is the way this child told me. It was so <laughs> beautiful. And that stuff moves me and, and hearing the, the way my wife describes some of the conversations with the girls that she met while undercover found its way into the lyric of a song called sunlight on her face. So it's all wrapped together. The legacy is this whole thing, this idea that I 
can use my rock band, my microphone and my six strings, my guitar and our platform to help fund and raise awareness about the abolition and specifically the work of the Exodus Road. And that that then feeds into the music and feeds into, you know, that's why we're doing this interview too, you know, is because there's something more than just music. But then at the same time, the music is the core of it. Those melodies are what I have to offer in a unique way. And I don't ever want to forget that or stray from that, you know. Unlike a lot of the guys I work with, unlike Liam Neeson's character in the Taken movie, I don't possess a particular set of skills <laughs> when it comes to uh, that kind of surveillance work. But I do possess this other kind of skills, and I'm going to use that. I'm going to use my voice until it wears out. We've been speaking a little bit here about the North Star. I'm extremely opinionated, so I'm not saying this lightly. The North Star has one of the most well-written songs I've heard in a really long time. Warlike covers so much ground, and so accurately. I'd love to hear the story behind the song. Warlike is a song that little hints of it came up in writing sessions over the last seven years. There's elements from the song Commodity and Warlike lyric that could have been used in Commodity and ideas that could have been used in Commodity. And my brother Philip came up with a bass riff. And he sent it over to me. And the first time I tried to start putting lyric on top of it was in a hotel. We'd been up till 6 a.m. flying to get to Southeast Asia. And Phil was going to join me to start the record in Asia within blocks of the red light streets that we worked at night doing casework with the Exodus Road. And I had all these little couplets, little two-liners, maybe sets of eight lines and started just putting on it just flowed right out into it but the ideas from all those couplets came from conversations for instance with a group of congolese refugees that my wife and i had in our house for dinner and they described to me what happened to their country how king leopold for some reason the world looks on as a human being owns a whole nation how, how is that okay? How do we look the other way when something like that happens? King Leopold. And then over the next couple centuries, their land is just raped. Their natural resources are stripped out. Dictators and warlords are propped up. Presidents are propped up that make tons of money. And the West and the East competes for their Colton and for their uranium. You know, And Colton is a blood mineral that we find in our cell phones and the way it's unethically harvested by international corporations in 2017 and 2018 this thing is something that makes my heart bleed why are we still this way and when i watch wonder woman and and um aries the god of war there's the power that this warlikeness has over us all the way back to the first time in the story of the first two brothers and that rock mm-hmm. you know and and the way that uh, in the movie noah that 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 rock turns into a knife, into a dagger, and then it's flowing through the air, and then it's a, a gun um, from the Civil War era. We've always been so good at this. We've always developed these technologies, and it's always been powerful people taking power over and taking from, and that colonialism that we never repented of. And the, the way we stole land here in this part of the world from the First Nations and from the indigenous tribes and built our economy on the backs of slaves. And then, you know, the thought today is, ah, it was 200 years ago, what's the big deal? Or segregation was 50 years ago in the States, what's the big deal? Come on, let's move on from it. We never really repent of this. 
and we, we never really weep with those who weep. And as people run for their lives today from wars and conflicts, we don't recognize our responsibility as humans and our responsibility as followers of another kingdom to say, hey, we want to be involved in giving you safe harbor. All of that combined, it's too much to say. So that's why there's just so much lyric in that song. Sometimes we have to lament. Sometimes we need to weep. And that song is me just weeping for those who weep and wanting something to be different and and not wanting to be quiet, silence in support of oppression. Seriously, Warlike is probably going to be the best song I hear all year. Thank you, man. Thank you. I, I need to hear that because it will cost me fans. It's going to cost me traction with people. But I, I just had to say it. I had to be honest. You know? I brought up about you 2 earlier, and I do yeah. hear some of their style coming through on the song Warlike. Has mm. U2 meant something to you? Yeah, for sure. Um, I can think of several moments in my teenage years that, you know, tearing up when With or Without You is playing, or the way that I still haven't found what I'm looking for has impacted me so profoundly. And then they come back with Beautiful Day, you know, in that album. Um, the couple albums ago, I, it grew on me so fast. It, it took a while. But just the way they put songs together, I, I love the delay pedal, you know, and Edge is the one that made that you know, so popular. And I just, I've always been moved by their music. The North Star is the second album from the band that looks at human trafficking. You just felt that things had been left unsaid on the commodity release? Yeah, and I was, I was in a weird spot. So my dad said to me, he's like, now what do you do? Are all your albums going to be about slavery now? Um, but yeah, I feel like there was things that were left unsaid. Granted, there's really only two or three songs that really, really focus on slavery on the North Star. Um, but they all play into this idea. If you look at a song like Brighter Than Apathy or Polaris, and a couple other ones, they all have a similar trend, and that is celebrating what seems insignificant, the work of people in the arena of justice and mercy and compassion. I want to broaden it out because I know that not everybody is moved to fight slavery. We all kind of lament it with these songs, but everybody has a, a separate role in these different arenas. And trying to celebrate that with, you know, was something that I, I missed on Commodity which I think is the biggest emphasis of this album. It's also interesting that you brought in a cover of Bob Marley. I mean, I guess you've done that before. It must mean that you're a fan. The North Star covers his redemption song. Something that was odd, I noticed in the album liner that the song is also credited to Edwin Hawkins. Is that not the same guy that made Oh Happy Day famous? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I assume that Marley wrote it himself, so when we uh, put the album liner together, I, I haven't even looked him up, to be honest with you. That song from Bob Marley, it must be speaking to you. It certainly ties into the context of the album. My favorite thing about using that song is I'm using the words of Bob Marley to go to our supporters, those that have stuck with us over the years and say, won't you help me sing these songs of freedom? Uh, and that's something that we're really thankful for. We have a group of people that help make this possible, because we don't have a record label anymore. 
And then he says, it's all I've ever had, Redemption Song. And going back to what we talked about, this is, this is our unique contribution. These songs and these melodies, somehow in a way that I, I'll never understand, just having them exist is so important. And having um, Propaganda, the rapper that was on the album, he called him Prophet Marley. He's like, because I, I thought he could maybe rap on that bridge. He's like, I don't want to touch Prophet Marley's piece there. <laughs> I love the way he said that. Uh, but the song just seems like it was written in 2018. Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. Have no fear for atomic energy because none of them can top the time. And here in the middle of all this recording, you know, I reference don't need an AK or an A-bomb on commodity. And then referencing that in the midst of all the fire and fury talk. Um, it just gives me a peace to know that that uh, guys like Bob Marley and Martin Luther King Jr. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I, I just want to put all my weight towards bending it, the little bit that I can bend it towards justice in my time here. I want to contribute in the same way Prophet Marley contributed. <laughs> I love how you term it as Prophet Marley. Yeah, well, I got that from propaganda. <laughs> here's, here's a funny thing is three years ago, we were covering that song at concerts. And that's, I actually met propaganda because he was uh, an artist at an event we were doing in Omaha. And, you know, if you know propaganda, he has dreadlocks and um, his dad was a civil rights activist, pretty radical one in the 60s. And so I, uh, when I met him, I was like, hey, I got to ask your permission. I don't have dreadlock. Can I sing this Bob Marley song tonight? It was just kind of, <laughs> I was just joking around. And uh, he was real gracious about it. The guy's incredible. I really admire his talent. And you brought propaganda in on a song on the North Star Sanctuary. Yeah. Yeah. What was it that he was going to add to the song? Well, I wanted him somewhere on the album. Um, I had just seen a panel with John Foreman from Switchfoot and Propaganda and David Dark and uh, one of the singers from The New Respects around the time of the Charleston shooting. And um, I had just uh, went and joined a demonstration in the state capitol of Tennessee um, in front of a, one of the founders of the KKK. His bust is there in the Tennessee state capitol. And more so, I was uh, really bummed out. One of those white supremacists had... Um, went into my brother's church and interrupted his church service. My brother has adopted three black children. And so imagine being the father of three black children and having one of the white supremacists the day after someone was killed in Charlottesville, have your church service interrupted. And this guy's trying to explain to them why he's just trying to preserve white culture and it's not racist. Oh my. And all that baloney, you know? Yeah. And then hearing propaganda and the way he talked about it in that, in that panel with John Foreman, there's a lot of education that's needed, and that's that's giving people the benefit of the doubt. So when I posted my video with my daughters, one of my daughters was holding a um, a doll, an American Girl doll, and they all have their own backstories. Each character, those dolls, and her doll is an African American doll, and she was a civil rights activist. That's her story, and so we we needed to take that doll to a to a rally. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so for me, part of the reason to have propaganda on the record is, you know, in war, like the song we already talked about, I say, you don't look a thing like Jesus Christ to me. You look like self-righteous apathy. You look like entitlement. You look like supremacy. Ye who tread on the weak to defend the wealthy. 
And there's so many people saying, hey, racial inequality does not exist in America. People say that. They, they have to believe that. And I, I understand why they say it, because if, if it exists, then it means that, no, we have a lot of work to be done in this area. There, there are systems that need to be fixed. And propaganda, I just felt like part of the reason I wanted him on the album so that people in our community can hear it from him because I think he has more authority than I do to speak on it. But at the same time, I can't be silent on it. Um, and I also knew that one of his lines from his newest album, I think it was on the song Crooked maybe, but he says that's why Jamie uh, packed his family up and moved to Fallujah. And he's referencing Jamie from uh, an organization called Preemptive Love. I'm wearing their shirt today. It says Love Anyways. Um, he goes and he follows those barrel bombs. He follows all the conflict in Syria and Iraq with food and humanitarian aid. And it's a, an organization that my family um, tries to help fund. And so to have propaganda on the album shines a light by the very nature of him being on the album on racial inequality in our country, but specifically having him on the song Sanctuary um, to partner with a guy like that on something that I know is important to him based on his tweets and our conversations uh, to have him specifically help me talk about the refugee crisis, which similar to slavery, there's more refugees than any other time in human history. You're probably well aware that <laughs> the North Star won't be considered a radio-friendly album because of its length. <laughs> the album runs 56 minutes, and several of the tracks are over five minutes long. Is a story better told in long form, or is it just you're unable to edit what you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess there is an art to gleaning something. Um, but one of my favorite bands is Cigarettes, and they got eight, ten-minute songs. And if you look back, you said you came in on Remedy Drive in 2008, but if you go back farther... We were never really commercial before that, that commercial album, Daylight. We had long mm -hmm. songs, long instrumentals. I grew up listening to Fish and Dave Matthews and going to Fish concerts. Sometimes they'd go 30 minutes on a song, you know. Specifically, like, Brighter Than Apathy, that's a seven-minute song. There was just a lot to be said. And when we had to edit it to play for, like, a TV thing, it was just hard to put it down to three and a half, four minutes. Those builds... If they happen too fast, they just don't seem authentic. And maybe that's just me making excuses for it. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I just like it. I like it to build, and I like it to be a slow build. Well, something else that's changed on the North Star is that you also stretched your music style. There's a lot of variation throughout the album. Is this simply your sound maturing? I, I hope so. I'd like to think of it that way. And, and and I've I've been more honest about my influences, um, you know. There's there's a lot of fast lyric and rap influenced lyric on um, songs like Warlike and Brighter Than Apathy. That's not a recent influence for me. You look back at the '90s, uh, bands like Beck and Cake and Red Hot Chili Peppers, which was needed. That style was needed to get out that level of lyric. I I, I want to do it. If you would hold up a document of all the lyric from the North Star and compare it to the lyric from Commodity and Daylight and Resuscitated probably has more lyric on that one album than all those three albums combined. So that might be a reason for the, the style. But then also when we, me and my brother and my kids uh, watched Stranger Things, like Phil went out 
and bought that Juno synthesizer that week. <laughs> and that thing is all over our album. Because <laughs> that's that nostalgia. That was when I was a kid, man. That's what things sounded like when I was a kid. Uh, and it just moved us so much. It's all coming full circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Towards the end of the North Star, there's the song Endless. And the lyrics speak about how we're sons and daughters of the realm and will win this. Mm. Then the lyrics go on to say, we're far too comfortable here. We're far too safe. Do you feel that we can even win when we're, you know, sitting here in the warm and cozy first world? Well, yeah, there is a, there is a real contrast there between the verses and the chorus. And what, what glues them together is I say... Uh, there's an untamed desire from a distant shore, like a dream or a memory of something more on the threshold of mystery behind a closed door. Have we forgotten that we forgot? And that's Chesterton. He talks about this idea that there's a song that we are born remembering. And it's in moments of inspiration that we even remember that we forgot it. And I think everybody has that, that longing to participate in something important and something bigger than ourselves, bigger than our lives, bigger than time. Uh, and the references to Shield Maiden showing up on the first song and the references to the Shire from this song gives context to it. Uh, I'm taking a lot of influence from C.S. Lewis and from J.R. Tolkien here. The idea that we could stay home in our comfortable Shire um, or we can go out like Frodo Baggins did and, and be this agent of change. As the Queen of the Elves said of Frodo, why did you choose Frodo, Gandalf? And he said, it's through these ordinary acts of everyday creatures that would keep the darkness at bay. So I do not think that staying home in safe, comfortable, insulated, shrink-wrapped Brentwood, Tennessee is an answer for our world problems. And merely tweeting about them from, from afar. The people that have inspired me have put themselves in the midst of these issues. And that's what I want the listener to take away. I want this music. Hopefully will just begin by moving somebody, the melodies alone, but where is it going to move them? That's what's exciting. I don't know. The antidote has been meeting with remedy drives. David Zock. This has been a pleasure. And thanks for putting up with all these questions. Hey, I, I really enjoy it. I love it when somebody knows the, the songs and you're willing to be honest about us being maybe overly commercial back in the day. And I, I love it to interview somebody that's done their research, and you really have. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for helping me say it, man. <laughs>